This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then philosopher and writer Eleanor Gordon-Smith came in to talk about her new book, Stop Being Reasonable. Eleanor and I discussed the features and limits of rational argument and what really changes our minds. And finally, Dr Chiara De Lazari joined me from the University of Melbourne to discuss the results of the 2019 European Parliamentary Elections. We discussed what it means for the European Union as well as the member states. We also explore the rise of movements on the left and right of politics, including populism and the DM25 group, led by former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. I'm Amy Mullins, and I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who's come in to talk about federal politics. And of course, we are a week later from the federal election, and we're talking about what has happened since that point in time. Hi there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are good you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Now, Ben, there's a bit that's happened in terms of uh, roles and leadership changes as naturally happens after a federal election. Um, let's start with Labor, given that they've just uh, changed leadership yesterday and we've seen uh, Anthony Albanese become the leader of the Labor Party. Albo is the new leader. We uh, now have Albo and ScoMo. Uh-huh. Albo uh, elected unopposed. In the end, no-one stood against him. So uh, he's he's been unanimously uh, enshrined, if you like or approved, anointed as the next Labor leader and the task is now for Albanese to rebuild Labor's primary vote which as he himself pointed out in a couple of his press conferences yesterday is only at 33% so one in three Australians voted for the Labor Party on May the 18th and of course that's not enough for Labor to take government so a big task ahead of him. Yeah, he highlighted that, you know, the primary votes of both major parties are significantly lower than historically and they've been declining over time. We're seeing more and more the rise of other parties such as the Greens and some of the more conservative small parties that are a little bit newer. Um, so they, he said that they really do need to up their game and make sure they're representing everyone, not just people who vote Liberal, Nationals or Labor. Um, but Albanese has now gone over to Queensland today as his first day as leader to speak, but mainly to listen to Queenslanders to find out what they got wrong. What do you think Albanese might find well, better late than never, I guess. Uh, you might want to say that the time to have done that would have been before the election, but um, now that they've realised uh, just how badly they're on the nose up in Queensland, I guess it is time to listen. Look, I don't know what he's going to find out. Presumably that's the point of, of going up there to listen, but we know that Labor only won, I think, five seats in, in Queensland out of 30, so that's a dismal performance by the Australian Labor Party. Um, and so there's plenty of work to be done there. Yeah, well, he's going to find a little bit of perhaps antagonism given that most one in four people over in Queensland didn't vote. No, one in four people did vote for Labor in Queensland. So there's three quarters of voters who aren't particularly interested in the Labor's message. That's right. Queensland is in many cases a conservative state, particularly outside the southeast. But it's also got uh, many aspects of populism, which at various times in Queensland history have been favourable to the ALP. Um, Queensland is the home of the ALP. It was born in Queensland, uh, the Australian Labor Party. So, you know, I don't don't think Queensland's a write-off for 
for ALP in the future. What they need to do is rediscover a way to talk to voters outside of the kind of um, inner city, I guess, uh, where they seem to be much stronger. Um, they've got to rediscover, I think, ways to talk to regional Queenslanders in particular. And probably they need to talk about some of those bread and butter hip pocket issues that seem to be so important in the election issues like wages, like job security um, and indeed issues on taxes and things like that. Yeah. Now, the Deputy Labor Leader has become uh, Richard Marles. He is a right faction member. Of course, you can't, apparently, according to Labor Convention, have a Labor Left Leader as the Leader and Deputy Leader. So, hence the jostling for the Deputy Leadership between a range of people, including Claire O'Neill, who didn't put herself forward in the end after speaking with colleagues. It's interesting uh, what she said on Insiders, which was uh, that she basically stepped down or stepped aside so that the person most experienced and best for the job could step forward, which is Richard Miles. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed in that because I think Claire O'Neill is one for the future for the ALP. I think she's one of their best young, talented politicians. Um, She's an excellent media performer. She's got a fine policy brain. Her book that she co-wrote with Tim Watts a couple of years ago is a really smart, intelligent book. Um, So I would have liked to have seen Claire O'Neill take that role. Uh, Richard Miles is a veteran factional player of the right. He's a former Shorten ally. He's the inheritor of the so-called short con faction that splintered after Stephen Conroy left the parliament. Um, so he, he was the best-placed factional leader to take on that position. He's also a Victorian, which balances it up because, of course, Albanese is a New South Welshman. Yes, and uh, Richard Miles, of course, does have a little bit of um, baggage in the sense of that short con faction and Shorten and being a backroom kind of numbers man. Claire O'Neill, in her Insiders interview, was very direct and I think quite genuine and authentic and in that sense has a lot more um, trustworthiness in terms of appearing trustworthy by having quite honest and upfront discussions, whereas Richard Miles, of course, doesn't necessarily have that that kind of strong uh, appearance of being direct. No, I, I don't think many of us would think of Richard Miles as a, a standout performer for the Labor Party. Uh, he was something of a non-entity as a front bencher in the shortened opposition. You know, I'd imagine that many of our listeners don't even know who Richard Miles is. And, of course, this also highlights the fact that Labor will have a leader and a deputy leader who are both men. Uh, so, you know, that's something of a, a, a backslide from their previous strong stance on gender equality. Uh, they do point out, of course, that Penny Wong will remain the leader of Labor in the Senate and probably Christina Keneally will be the deputy leader in the Senate. So they'll try and claim that two or four are women if you count the Senate. But I think it, it's still disappointing in the sense that um, they couldn't find a young woman who could take that role. I think I think that is a, is a disappointment. But it shows you, obviously, ultimately, that factions are still the most important structural issue inside the Labor Party. I mean, remember, the leadership was meant to go to a vote of members, but because no one stood against Albanese, ALP members won't get a vote now. Mm. Uh, Now, in this case, I don't think ALP members will mind too much because we know from the last vote that they quite like Albo. So I think he'll be a popular... 
popular leader for the Labor base. But uh, it does highlight, once again, that this is basically a factional stitch-up, right? Like, this, these are the factions deciding amongst themselves who the Labor leader is going to be. Yeah, exactly. People doing the numbers. The numbers are shifting over the weekend. Even prior to the weekend, we saw Jim Chalmers at Queensland MP also floating the idea of running and Chris Bowen. And, of course, they realised they didn't have the support overall. So, yeah, it is, it is interesting that that's um, how they've proceeded. Now, let's talk about the changes to the Morrison government quite a few members remain the same and of course um, they may have just changed roles or added uh, areas to their portfolios such as for example Maurice Payne who's now also the Minister for Women as well as Foreign Affairs Uh, but there are some new changes as well and some movement we've seen Mitch Firefield no longer um, is going to be a senator he's actually going to be ambassador for Australia to the UN and we've also seen uh, Arthur Sinodinus, who is, um, you know, a highly regarded and well-respected uh, person and certainly after the election has called for some bipartisanship, particularly around renewable energy policy. So it's interesting that uh, he has been appointed to be the Australian ambassador to the US. Yep, that's right. Two senior ministers uh, are gone already. Yeah. <laughs> so the talent dwindled. Two weeks after the election, and Sinodinus, who most people consider to be the most talented front bencher, yeah. certainly the most politically savvy. You remember, he was John Howard's chief of staff for a decade. Um, he was then Malcolm Turnbull's cabinet secretary, a deeply experienced political operator, had recovered from cancer and was looking to, uh, I think, you know, um, stamp his 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 voice in the new government he's uh, he's now taken that role as the ambassador to Washington after Joe Hockey steps down so that's a plum position for him and I'm yeah. sure that he will enjoy that and um you know actually even though this is jobs for the boys quite transparently this is these are jobs rewarding senior liberal figures with supposedly non-partisan diplomatic roles i actually think sindinus will be a good good ambassador and i actually think that will be a, a smart move cuz uh, he's the sort of guy who will do well in washington and be able to operate well there politically and mitch Fifield, a veteran coalition operator a backroom guy factional leader in the victorian liberals for a long period of time communications and the arts minister he's also stepping down he looks like he's going to take a role as another ambassador um, so that uh, opens up the communications portfolio which goes now to paul fletcher uh, a new south wales moderate um, he's someone who has worked in the telecommunications industry before so he inherits the hospital pass that is the mbn lucky him Yay. Um, <laughs> there have been a range of other shuffles inside the cabinet a couple that have been most remarked upon would be stuart robert the Queensland mm. LNP MP. He's been given the portfolio in charge of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, a very difficult portfolio, one which many would question whether he has the competence to undertake. Robert himself, of course, is uh, something of a chequered political history. He was forced to resign from Malcolm Turnbull's ministry after being found to have accepted gifts and also lobbying on the behalf of Liberal Party donors to the Chinese government. <laughs> it's amazing how some of these guys can rehabilitate themselves. Back in the, from the dead. Yeah, in a couple of years. But Robert is, of course, a very important factional ally of Scott Morrison, and that's why he's being rewarded. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw on Twitter someone, a journalist, remarked that there's been six 
different ministers looking at the NDIS over six years, which is pretty uh, concerning given that this is a very important program that has massive issues in terms of its rollout and management. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, um, you would think that you would need some continuity there, uh, but that's the way of politics, isn't it? You know, these ministers rotate through mm-hmm. these roles seemingly constantly and the bureaucrats are left to, to pick up the pieces and we know, in fact, of course, the bureaucrats are struggling with the NDIS. There's a $1.6 billion shortfall. We haven't really heard how the government plans to fix that in the, in the coming three years. We haven't really heard much about the government's program altogether and that no. brings up a kind of an important point, Amy, which is that... Yes, the government's re-elected. Yes, it's springtime for Morrison in Australia. But, you know, it's also... There's a lot of problems on the horizon, not just the economy. Climate change is not going away. There's a bunch of policy issues that the government confronts that it's now going to have to deal with over the next three years. So the going's going to get tougher. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it is going to get tough. Um, Another funny thing, uh, people had noted that one of Scott Morrison's first... um, promise breaks or breaking of promises was Susan Lee becoming the Environment Minister and the dumping of Melissa Price who of course went missing in the federal election like many front bench ministers in the Morrison government and had many um, controversies in terms of her communication in the media and uh, talking about rising emissions saying they were actually going uh, down instead of up when they weren't and many other things. Yes Melissa Price has been moved on to other duties after being a liability in the environment portfolio um susan lee the also coming back from scandal yes. uh we might remember um she was embroiled in a in another sort of donations and, and influence scandal to do with liberal party donor and travel allowances travel allowances yep uh so she's back after winning her seat uh, in out in the west of New South Wales, Farrah. yeah, Farrah, New South Wales. So um, she's the environment minister. Angus Taylor, the energy minister, has been given responsibility for climate change, which is a particularly black joke for those of us who followed his career as the energy minister. Yes, and um, emissions reduction is the actual one of the terms yes, in his portfolio. Yes, I, I mean that. It's ironic, really, and yeah, a bit of a joke. Yeah, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious, but <laughs> yeah. of course it is very serious, and it, it's it's pretty depressing, really, because this is a guy who's constantly lied about Australia's emissions trajectory. I mean, he's flat out said that emissions are falling and Australia will meet our Paris commitments, which is not true. So this is the calibre of the bloke who's taking over the emissions reduction task Um, and of course there's still a bunch of unanswered questions about Angus Taylor's role in the water buyback uh, situation. Uh, There's a sort of micro scandal in the couple of weeks leading up to the election around a Cayman Islands registered company that Taylor was involved in setting up that was then the recipient of uh, $80 million government deal to buy a whole bunch of water um, that doesn't really even exist, but the government's bought it off it anyway. So all sorts of interesting stuff bubbling away under the surface here. You know, at the moment, none of it will probably come to the surface because everyone's looking their wounds in the Labor Party and the media's mainly just looking at why Labor lost at the moment. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, eventually people will turn around and start scrutinising the government again and then I think things will get quite difficult for the government in the coming months. Yeah, and on the note of climate change and the environment, uh, Warren Ench has been appointed the government's special envoy to the Great Barrier Reef, which uh, is interesting because he's already... Sp- 
out and talking today about things that he wants to change. Of course, the special envoy type role doesn't necessarily come with any immediate types of powers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think his first statement is he's going to fight a war on plastic. Yes. Plastic in the water is the great threat to the Barrier Reef. I mean, again, it's pretty depressing stuff, isn't it? I mean, look, we all agree that plastic is bad, but that's not the big threat to the Barrier Reef, is it? No. No. Um, warming. Warming is yep. the great threat to the Barrier Reef. But I think that's part of the course for this government, just pretending that climate change doesn't exist. And now that Labor's lost and now that we've had the climate change election that wasn't, I, re- I think it's really up to the environmental movement and to civil society, to ordinary Australians, to put the pressure on now politics is not going to do it for us so we want to save the planet we're going to have to go back to grassroots organizing and protests and that kind of stuff i can't see any other way yeah well the interesting thing that uh, albanese said in his speech yesterday was that he is not tony abbott he doesn't want to be um an extreme opposition leader to just say no and um constantly be pushing back on the government he wants to appear like the consensus leader and try to be bipartisan on really important issues such as he has named the uluru statement from the heart as being one of those areas that he wants to focus on and of course this week is recognized conciliation week it's interesting isn't it because i think um what the the issues he's named are not really bipartisan issues climate change yeah and indigenous affairs they're issues that the government doesn't have policies on at all or has flatly rejected in the case of the statement from the heart so what he's really doing there is a subtle wedge which is very clever um, I, I think there'll be re- some really big challenges for Albanese coming forward. Um, what is he going to do about the government's tax cuts? Uh, is he just going to pass them? These tax There's cuts. There's a lot of pressure on them to pass yep. them, certainly. These tax cuts are deeply regressive. They give tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars to the richest Australians. They'll make yep. Australia much more unequal. They'll make Labor's task in government, if it ever gets back, much more difficult. So, on any policy level, Labor should oppose those tax cuts to the rich. But what are you going to do? You've just lost an election in part because of tax policy. It's a really tough question, actually. Yeah, well, the Labor Party, of course, supports the low to medium income changes because that does help the majority of working Australians. But, of course, we see a flattening of the tax system under this coalition proposal, which really does mean that people on um, highly disparate incomes actually end up being taxed at very much the same rate. Well, absolutely the same rate. I think um, if the Morrison tax cuts go through, then the rate will be flat from $45,000 income right up to $200,000 income. Um, Now, of course, rich people like to say, well, rich people pay most of the income tax, and that's very unfair. But um, it's a little bit like bank robbers and banks. You know, the government gets more tax out of rich people because that's where the money is. You know, rich people earn much more income and that's why they pay much more income tax. And Australia's tax system is progressive. It's designed mm-hmm. to tax rich people at higher rates because that's how you can generate the revenue that we say we want for schools, roads and hospitals. So it's a difficult one. You know, if you ask voters what they want, they want lower taxes, but they also want first-class hospitals and new highways and 
and level crossing removals and all the rest of it. Um, there is one more thing I wanted to mention, Amy, which is the makeup of the Senate. So we're we're getting to a, a pretty good idea of what the Senate will look like, and um, it's looking pretty favourable for the government, I have to say. So yes, it is. Um, the LNP um, combined will control probably 35 seats in the Senate, which means they'll probably only need three extra votes to to get votes up yep. to pass bills in the Senate. Um, they can count on Cory Bernardi for pretty much mm-hmm. everything, so that's 36. One Nation will probably have two senators, so that gets them to 38. So really... Um, the balance of power in the Senate looks like it'll be held by Jackie Lambie and the Centre Alliance yes. from South Australia. Formerly Nick Xenophon's party. Yeah, so that gives, it certainly gives those independents a lot of power to negotiate. But I think it also gives the government a very good chance of passing most of its legislation. Exactly. Well, it means it can bypass um, Labor and the Greens if it so chooses. Labor and the Greens will be pretty irrelevant in the Senate in this coming uh, parliament. Um, and I think that's something to, to reflect on for both of those parties, actually. They're looking at three years in the wilderness, at least in parliamentary terms. Indeed. And also interesting to reflect on Jackie Lambie, who has, against all the odds, um, who didn't have, you know, ba- massive amounts of backing from people, who's basically gone out to Tassie and door knocked to get back and re- be re-elected. It's very interesting to see that. Yeah, I think it shows the, the power of one, in a way, actually. You know, Lambie is a, a sort of unique... Uh, unique politician um she's salt of the earth tasmanians really identify with her particularly in the north of the state you go to the north of tasmania lambie's really popular yeah. um, and she's popular for those reasons because she doesn't appear like a normal politician she speaks her mind she sticks up for her constituents um, and she's been able to poll well over a quota and she'll definitely be in in Tasmania. So, yeah, and she's now in a position to be negotiating most of the legislation going through the, the Senate. Yeah, it's going to be great to watch. Ben, thank you so much for coming in to talk federal politics. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio writer and radio producer Eleanor Gordon-Smith. And Eleanor is uh, also the author of a new book and it's called Stop Being Reasonable, which is out through New South Books. And she has come all the way from America to uh, do a bit of a book tour and uh, do some interviews. So I welcome Eleanor now. Hi there. Thank you so much. Hello. Hi. It's great to have you and to talk about some pretty big issues. Yeah. That's the hope. Well, we often don't really get to sit back and have moments of reflection that are, I guess, structured. Mm. And and that's what I think philosophy often has given me is Mm. different frames to explore ideas and Mm. hopefully not feel too lost Mm. when the questions are so big. Obviously, in the title, it's Stop Being Reasonable. So we're talking about rationality and argument and decision-making and beliefs and selfhood and what we perceived to be our narrative in life. So I'm looking forward to discussing all of these issues with you. But first up, let's talk about where you're coming from and your skill set and interests. (laughs) As you open in this book, you talk about the fact that you were an avid debater Mm. throughout your childhood and um, were obviously very much engaged at the highest levels, particularly in high school. Mm. What 
drew you to this area or field that is quite argumentative because debating is one team versus another to win an argument what first drew you in to debating and and that style of um exploring ideas yeah uh it's a good question i before i was in philosophy where i am now i think that like all along in my life i had a bit of a taste for arguments and their construction like i liked looking at things in an architectural way and seeing like which bits of the argument are hanging together in which ways and obviously that's something that's like really big in academic philosophy where I am now but when I was a kid the nearest thing that you have that expresses that is debating and honestly I mean I wish I had a more sophisticated explanation for why I got interested in it I I know why I was interested in it when I was older but when I started I was in like year five which is super young and I think it was just it was a stage like I liked being on stage and you know, I was a really like applause hungry kid and, and it was an opportunity to to be talking in front of people mm. and then obviously I started to learn more about it and it became important to me in a variety of different ways to the point that by the time I was sort of 16 or 17 I was like I could take or leave the audience honestly like it doesn't really matter to me that I'm on stage what matters to me is that I'm with my teammates who are so intelligent and we're sitting in a room for an hour together and trying to come up with arguments. It was just like intellectual brain food, you know? Mm, Yeah. And so when you got to university, Mm. what kind of areas did you think you would be pursuing? Because often people, you know, in that transition between high school and university, you only get exposed to a set kind of range of ideas and subjects at high school and then at university it just feels like there's a whole other world of opportunity or possibility what was your experience I mean I wish I had been a little more like horizon expandy honestly when I got to university I just did more debating for like (laughs) the first couple years um I then started to get sort of bored with my government and politics degree I think when you're a debater, a lot of the time when you're growing up, people are like, oh, you'll be in law, you'll be in politics, like, oh, you're going to be a prime minister. And you just sort of vacuum that up Mm. and think that is indeed what I will do with my life, I guess, because you've told me so. Um, So that was what I thought I would do with my life. Um, And I, I, if I look at my life now and I try to imagine like telling my previous self that I would drop all politics, government and rigorous argumentation in, in the kind of public sphere and then I would become way more interested in like reporting people's stories and working in academic philosophy it just wouldn't seem plausible but I mean I guess you know a bunch of stuff changed and I think it changed by accident I think that's often how the big things in our lives change is that they just sort of sneak up on you Mm. and one day I had a unit to fill inside my degree and I went to a philosophy class and I sat in it and I was like oh like I get it this is why everything else feels unsatisfying because everything else is trying to provide answers and philosophy is trying to ask more questions. That's one of the things I find most frustrating about philosophy <laughs> is that there are so many questions and when you ask one question, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are like a million questions that uh-huh. follow. And they all unravel. Mm-hmm. And so I often have this tension for myself when I studied philosophy between wanting to ask big questions because you clearly need to have thought of it to get to an answer, yeah. a, a meaningful, useful answer. But then again, I didn't want to be just asking questions for questions sake and then never reaching an answer yeah even if the answer is only a temporary one that I might like change or expand on in the future that's interesting yeah it's really interesting I'm the exact opposite I really like the space where you don't have an answer and I have always kind of felt like 
I'm hungry for answers and so I sort of have to resist that. It feels like a kind of self-discipline to be like, well, but you don't know the answer. You could pick one. You could just flip a coin and decide to believe something. But, like, the reality is you actually don't have a satisfying answer. So you should, like, do yourself the service of sitting in not knowing. And I think I always found that super satisfying, especially coming off the back of a life where... You know, I'd spent so long proffering answers in various speeches and academic environments to suddenly be allowed, as it were, to be like, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard question. People have been asking it for 2,000 years. I don't know. Here's my best guess. So here's a new way of formulating the question. That felt like a huge freedom. Mm, I can see how that would be quite liberating, yeah, given yeah. that you've constantly had the expectation to provide an answer, mm. whether or not the answer was always to your satisfaction. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I definitely don't think there should be an answer for answer's sake because that just feels really yeah, it feels useless. Yeah. So um, philosophy obviously is a really great way to change your thinking and look at the world in different ways and that to me has been very useful. Mm. For you, you are now undertaking postgraduate studies mm-hmm. in philosophy mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. over at Princeton University. So how did you move into philosophy or decide that this was something that was going to be worthwhile for you as a professional pursuit? Because a lot of people might enjoy it but then not take the next step or feel quite daunted perhaps yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to actually really confidently stake yourself into philosophy. Yeah. And it has traditionally been quite male-dominated. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's not always been that welcoming. I was really lucky on two counts. One was I just grew up with a lot of boys and a lot of jousting. And it wasn't until I was like in my sort of mid to late 20s that I started to be like, oh, I said late 20s. I'm still in the mids. You know what I mean? (laughs) It wasn't until I was quite old that I was like, oh, like this whole time I've been violating gender norms. Like, whoops. (laughs) I just, I was spared that realization for quite a long time. So I always felt really unnaturally comfortable in that kind of male dominated jousty environment. Now I look at it and I can see why it's sort of obnoxious or boorish or excludes other people. But I was very lucky to be just not cognizant of that mm. it just kind of glanced off me or I was like yeah fun let's fight you want to fight let's fight <laughs> um so that was good that that was a thing on which I got lucky but the other thing I got lucky about that explained why I took it any further than just doing a degree was I had wonderful teachers and people who knew that I was working in radio at the same time as I was doing my undergraduate and knew that I was sort of on the edge of like leaving uni and just felt like public facing work was more important and I was like, what's the point of academia? I just want to go and do like reporting and, and keep doing radio work. And they were very sweet about saying to me, you know, like, you're good. You should keep doing this. And like, I, I think that you should. I think that you have the talent and and also that it would be, I mean, like, it feels weird to repeat compliments, but they were like, it feels like you could do something important if you kept working in this area. And that's nice. It's really, mm-hmm. and you know, everyone has that one teacher and, and I had about three of them and it was a real blessing. It is. I think well, to have that from, you know, an academic totally. is a massive compliment, you know. So basically we get to this book. Mm-hmm. It's pretty unique to be writing a book in your 20s. I think it's a great thing. Thank you. Um, so congratulations. And really I'm interested. <laughs> While in grad school too, which was a Yeah. Bit. <laughs> I was going to say. The workload how was does, heavy. How does one actually, yeah. I mean, I'm just one of those people. Like I just like. Do you I sleep? Just, I just. <laughs> 
I do actually. I sleep a lot. I think sleep is important. I kind yeah. of don't really care for this like workaholic culture where people are just like measuring the size of their intellectual biceps by like, oh, I was in the office till four in the morning. It's mm. like, well, okay, great. So now you're underslept and you're not functioning. Like, yes. good for you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I think sleep's important, but I also think that, you know, if you're lucky enough, like I am, to be doing graduate school and in a position to be thinking really deeply about something and to be kind of working on your own terms. Like, I don't have a boss. That's amazing. Like, Mm. so few people are in that position. I just feel, like, really lucky and I feel like I have to do something with all that luck. That's a really great way of putting it. Thank you. Let's move into the book and how you got to the idea of writing the book. It is pretty unique, I guess, in terms of the subject matter and the way that you've approached it. Uh, And given that, as you said, you've worked in radio, you're very much interested in speaking to people and having a very practical focus as well. Mm. I'm interested to hear more about the story that you did for radio on This American Life, which Mm. led you to this book. And as you said, I think it was in the was it at the end of the book you were saying that it kind of evolved? Like yeah. it, you you still change what it might be about mm. whilst you were writing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what the book is now is it's a series of true stories about people who changed their minds in high-stakes ways where they really started to lose something. Like the thing that they were changing their mind about was something that was bedrock to the way that they saw themselves or the way that they saw the world. And I wanted to go and interview those people as a philosopher, but also as a reporter and say like, hey, what happened in that moment where everything that you had believed really strongly crumbled? And what was it like to go through that? Was it like a grief process? Was it an awakening? Like, what did it feel like? But then more importantly for like my academic background, I wanted to take those true stories, many of which were super moving, and pair them with philosophical questions about what it is to be reasonable, what it is to be rational, and what their stories could teach us about what a quote-unquote like good change of mind really looks like. So that's where it ended up. It started because I did this radio program for This American Life where I walked around the streets of King's Cross in Sydney's like party slash nightlife district. It used to be before they changed all the laws and you can't buy alcohol there. But time was, it was a bit of a like rowdy environment. And I walked It is around. a little bit seedy too. It's still, it's still seedy. It's just like there's six people, but all six of them are seedy, you know? Yeah. Like it's lost the life, but it hasn't lost the grossness. Um, <laughs> so I would walk around there with a microphone and a recorder and I would wait to be catcalled and sort of generally harassed, which obviously happened fairly frequently and I would turn around to those guys and I would say like hey what did you just say and like sincerely I'm curious please help me understand Mm. what were you hoping for like how like what really when you go home and look in the mirror and you're like gonna catcall today what are you thinking what is it in your mind that makes you think that's fun or something you want to do and I spent a couple weeks doing that and the ultimate aim of that project had been I'll get one of these guys and I'll sit down with them and I'll talk for like an hour and I'll get them to change their mind about catcalling. So the the radio program wound up being a sort of collage of the conversations that I'd had with people and in none of them was I successful at changing someone's mind. Yeah, I listened back to parts of it and mm. heard some of the very Aussie yeah. guys that you spoke to. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean... Some of them, it seemed like, were kind of a bit like show-offs, you know. They had a very flamboyant or outgoing character or persona Mm. on the street. And Mm -hmm. and a lot of... I I certainly have been in a similar kind of situation where you do come across those men who are kind of like 
they'll often do it in a really overly smiley friendly way like you know and they perceive it to be a real compliment that Mm -hmm. and and that they're really trying to kind of bestow upon you some really positive sentiment yeah 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 was that the main kind of reason or were there other reasons that they were hoping for like were they trying to get some kind of attention or like yeah get a relationship out of it I mean it was it was all of those I was kind of surprised I had hoped that when I went and talked to them and just like held out a microphone and said why do you do this that some kind of consistent motivation would come through and in fact what came through was that every single guy I spoke to had a broadly different way of explaining why they thought this was a cool thing to do some of them said you know I think I just do this for like a pack mentality I think I'm just doing it for the guys around me like honestly it's more about my friends Mm -hmm. than it is about you uh some of them said apparently totally sincerely like i'm trying to meet someone i'm trying to meet a a girl and at least this way i'm getting her attention and then some of them were just like yeah i really don't know (laughs) some of them were like actually i can't tell you i'm just in the habit at this point so it was kind of a a sort of inconsistent mishmash of motivations Mm. and it shows that really you can't assume someone's motivation totally for anything yeah i sort of had expected that they would be more transparent with themselves about why they were doing what they were doing but i guess i guess very often people do things for reasons that they don't understand Mm. so you had a lot of in-depth conversations with people Mm. men Mm. on the street women didn't cat call you did they be amazed to hear no no (laughs) so i wish they would that would be fun yeah Yeah. In terms of some of the men, like I know that you, there was two men or friends that you spoke to. I think it was Zach and Zach, Mike, and, yeah. yeah, and they were um, really keen to talk. And I think you spoke maybe twice, was it? Yeah, well, I spoke to Zach twice. Yeah, Zach and Mike was the one-off. Yeah, and not only was it catcalling, it was a tap or a slap on the butt. Yeah, so. This was super interesting. I mean, I should be clear. Like, I really liked these guys, and part of me still is like. I feel like I sort of did them dirty by putting them on the radio, but it's like you know they knew what they they know what a recorder is, they know what a microphone is, they know what a journalist is, and like they did in fact say all these things. So you know, <laughs> I have to remind yeah. myself that I'm not the node of blame for the fact that people now know that they think those things because they do think those things, and they said that they thought those things. What they said they thought was like not only is it fun to yell compliments at women, but it's fun to run up behind a group of girls and like smack one of them like hard on the bum and then bum feels so trivializing but it's what they said mm. and this was like a fun way of getting her attention and it was only when i went home with that tape to one of the producers of this american life and i was like oh hey like i spoke to these guys which was you know we've been doing this for dozens of nights at this point uh and they listened to the tape and they were like uh that's assault <laughs> like that's really serious and I hadn't really clocked that it mattered as much as I think they thought that it did. And obviously they were right. Um, But, yeah, I I spoke to them quite a lot. And I went back to talk to Zach on a weekday when he wasn't with his friends and when it wasn't, you know, rabble-rousy night type Mm -hmm. culture. And I spoke to him for, like, 90 minutes, just us one-on-one sober in the daytime. And that's the conversation that went to air in full that's like all all sort of half hour of the show was basically that uninterrupted conversation and yeah i got him to to commit to not slapping people anymore but i couldn't i could not get him to change his mind about actual catcalling and clearly you're engaging there in i guess a rational argument you're trying to say well surely i can convince them that 
this is something that most women would not welcome or enjoy. And even if you think they are, they're probably being polite or trying to protect themselves in some way from a potentially threatening situation. Mm. And um, I was really interested that you highlighted that a lot of the men would say, yeah, but you're not speaking for all women. Yeah. What, what about the others? You know, surely surely there are women out there based on my positive response that I've seen, like mm. the vocal tone or the body language yeah. of women who respond back to me. Yeah, and this is where the philosophy kicks in and this is what I try to do in the chapter of the book that deals with this is I was watching this amazing philosophical thing play out where two things were happening. One, we both had the same piece of evidence but we're moving it in completely different directions. And two, there was this whole economy of credibility and who was worth believing that was kind of operating underneath what we were each saying. So the evidence thing was, you know, they would say, well, no, of course women like it. Like, of course women enjoy it. Like, I've seen them. They're smiling, they're laughing, they're shouting back, you know, and they've got this positive expression on their face. And I was saying... Yeah, I know that expression. I've done that expression a lot. That's an expression of, I can't be bothered to fight this. I can't be bothered to earn a reputation as a difficult woman. I can't be bothered right now to get told off or get into an argument with some guy who's going to tell me to smile more. Mm. Like, fine. You want me to look like I'm enjoying myself. You want to have this fiction. Fine. It is the path of least resistance for me to smile and laugh. So I'll do it. And it's kind of horrible and dishonest and a disservice to yourself. But what I hadn't realized was... It's honestly putting sort of quote-unquote evidence out there for them. So I was looking at that piece of evidence and seeing really strong conclusion that these women are uncomfortable. They're looking at the same piece of evidence and concluding these women are loving it. And that was so philosophically interesting to me as well in terms of what do I do to make them see that my conclusion is rational and theirs isn't because both of us think we're reacting to evidence. And then the other thing that happened in that conversation was as you say, they would say you can't, you can't speak for all women, which was so interesting to me because, as was pointed out to me afterwards, like as though they can, you know what I mean? Mm. Like as though they're a better authority on what other women think than, than I am. Um, and to be clear, I don't think that I am an authority what, on what all women think. There are plenty of women who do enjoy catcalling. I just thought it was strange that I was the only one in the conversation who didn't know what other women were thinking, whereas these guys mm. did. And it was another really philosophically interesting thing for me to look at the fact that I think the mechanism there was one of credibility you know I I mentioned like an economy of credibility I think what was happening was they just looked at me and it wasn't even what I was saying it was the fact that it was me who was saying it and they looked at me as a woman who was a journalist and kind of I have like nerdy glasses and like tortoiseshell frames on my face and I have like mousy brown hair and, and here I am trying to have this argument with them instead of like coming out for a drink I think they just saw that person and they were like yeah of course you think it's not fun because a you're a woman and b you're a fun sponge and that just meant that the words themselves didn't matter it was like the mouth that they were coming out of that that mattered yeah and you highlight this whole issue around testimony and mm. um, what was really interesting is you, that you say 
What is the picture of evidence here such that testimony doesn't count? Why is it that for any other criminal act, testimony and the balance of probability make it rational to believe that guy did it, but in this case they do not? And you're talking about sexual assault allegations mm, mm. and, you know, there's been many great examples of that, but particularly Brett Kavanagh mm-hmm. and Christine Blasey Ford. Yeah. And that situation where, you know, she was very calm mm-hmm. and mild-mannered and respectful respectful and very sober I guess in the way she spoke Mm -hmm. and at the testimony and then we saw um, Brett Kavanagh who was looking to become the next judge on the Supreme Court bench in America you know being very emotional not particularly rational or at least he was Mm -hmm. very um, reactive. Yeah yeah I mean there's a fantastic book um, by Suraj Mali called um, Women's Rage or the Power of Women's Anger and she noted when it was sort of, I mean, it was good luck for her publicity, but it was really sad that this happened, that the book sort of coincided with, with that time. And she pointed out, like, that's a man who yelled on national TV, talked about how much he liked beer, cried, accused his questioners of themselves being alcoholics, and he struck millions of people as more credible than she did when she did everything right that you're meant to do as a sober rational witness and it was yeah it was one of those moments that that made really vivid for me the fact that you know you you read that the quote which was you know what do we think evidence is when we say and that's you know again it's a philosophical question it's it's why i think philosophy is useful for these things it's why i wanted to write a book in part coming from my own philosophical background was you know when people say yeah, but she didn't give us any evidence to believe what she's saying. Like, she didn't give us any reason to believe what she's saying. I'm like, mm-hmm. why do you think that what she's saying is itself not evidence? Like, what evidence are you waiting for? I mean, I know the answer to that is, you know, DNA things or other eyewitness testimonies or whatever. But the opening bid seemed to be, yeah, well, all we have is that she said something and that's not evidence. And it was like, why not? Because in so many other parts of our life, the fact that someone said something is perfectly good grounds to believe it. You know, like I say, where's the train station? You say it's down there and to the left. Great. That's evidence on which I act. You know, mm. you have given me some testimony which seems to function like evidence. So why is it that in these extraordinarily high stakes situations, suddenly we seem to adopt the philosophical view that testimony is not evidence it was very peculiar Mm, it is peculiar philosophers were really in a tangle that week a lot of it was i was on campus watching a lot of the hearings and the confidence with which people were like oh but we don't have any evidence for this and people were like testimony is evidence (laughs) yeah exactly witness testimony yeah someone yeah who was actually the person in question who experienced the Mm. alleged assault Mm. i mean obviously there's cases where that goes wrong and obviously it needs to be tempered but it just was one of those scenarios where i see people stating with a certainty that they have not earned something that they think is a deep philosophical truth that i know to be questionable and so one of the things that makes this whole discussion about what is reason and what is rationality Mm. and are we really arguing with rationality when we have public debates about important issues like climate change or um, tax and who should be taxed more. There are so many areas that we think that we can have this kind of contest of ideas where the best ideas win and we have to have it out in the open so that everyone can see it, make up their own minds based on the evidence and the arguments that are put forward. Mm. And to an extent, it can work. I mean, there are so many interesting examples. Like if I think of the best 
debater who's using what and we'll get to what is reason or rationality in a second, but one of the people that springs to mind is Christopher Hitchens mm. because he spent his life debating people. He's so good. Isn't he? And he, like, whenever I watch a debate, and I sometimes just went through the whole YouTube and just watched all of them, mm. when he would, you know, argue with Tony Blair, for example, about God and mm. religion and whether it was real or not, and I just felt like he was one of those people to me where I could see that there was some kind of commitment to rational debate and that, to me, I think he could potentially sway people. But I always admired his oh, skill and, yeah, uh, and, yeah scepticism. It just seemed so eminently sensible, the way that he said things. Yeah. And I wonder what, you know, someone who is really effective like Christopher Hitchens was in terms of talking about issues of public importance that have a moral or ethical frame like to you when you're thinking about rationality and reason and whether we do even have any form of rational debate in public discourse Mm. what would you say about someone like Christopher Hitchens who pretty much that was his whole bread and butter I guess yeah what an interesting question um so the title is stop being reasonable and what I mean by that is not let's cease using reason or rationality What I mean by that is, like, stop using the notion of rationality that you currently have because in public, at least, I think what we take rationality to be has been kind of stripped bare and, like, denuded of a lot of what makes us people. And often, you know, the kind of thing that you'll see people doing in the name of rationality is really peculiar. Like, I live in America. There's a lot of Silicon Valley-type rationality which seems to involve drinking a whole lot of protein powder and optimizing (laughs) endlessly and, like, keeping track of every minute in your day and making sure it's maximally productive. It's like what people take rationality to be is, like, a march towards a literally non-human future. It's like Mm. a robotic, like, if I can turn myself into a robot, then hooray, I've been rational. Um, So that's kind of the title. And, in fact, the first the introduction title is everything was protein powder and nothing hurt which is a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of of mocking precisely that picture of rationality and someone like hitch i think is such a good model of what actually rich rational persuasion looks like because you'll notice with with a truly great orator and the things that i found attractive in public speaking when i was a kid you know they're not doing that weird denuded version of reality of reality of rationality Mm. they're doing a version which acknowledges and proceeds from you're a human and i'm a human and i'm talking to you and i am at liberty therefore you know this is in like aristotle's rhetoric like people have known this for thousands of years when you're an orator you're at liberty to use things like how your audience is feeling how they're seeing themselves how they are seeing you which narratives they're thinking in line with who they trust like all those things are admissible to a truly great persuasive speech but then what's weird is as someone who was once you know kind of good at persuasive speaking nowhere on par with christian but you know kind of like i could i could bend my way around an argument people often look at that and feel like Oh, you're manipulating me. Like, ah, your, your, your use of oratory is short-circuiting my rational brain and you shouldn't manipulate me like that. And there's a sort of mistrust of people like Hitchens and people who are good with words as though what they're doing by appealing to our humanness is underhanded or, like, sneaky in some way. And that's so weird to me because mm. it's like in order to think that a good orator is manipulating you, you have to think that the things they're appealing to, like emotion and your sense of self, are 
not rational and don't belong in your decision making. So that's like that's the only way you can make those poll those polls connect is to mm. be like you're manipulating me because the things you're appealing to don't belong in my decision making, which is a bizarre thing to think, I think. Yeah. So there is a role for empathy and elements of the human existence of I think what so. makes us unique. I think so. And that's that's sort of the guiding thesis of the book. You know, is that we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to each other, we owe it to the philosophical richness of a lot of these concepts to be more capacious in what we take rationality to be. And I think that there are very good arguments, philosophical and, you know, just on the basis of the people that I spoke to, like things that came out of my conversations with these wonderful sharing people who were so open with me about the moments that they changed their minds. You know, there are real lessons about the fact that what it is to be reasonable might be much more capacious than we've imagined. We'll get to some of those examples in a minute. But before we do that, I want to kind of just close off this discussion about what is being reasonable, Mm. which is really the first chapter, I guess, Mm. of this book. And it was really interesting to me that you were highlighting some things that we probably don't question very often, which is what exactly is being rational when you're having a public debate and Mm. you said that you teach ethics at university and a lot of people will say well everyone's entitled to their opinion and that's important in public debate and that rationality and free speech and liberty is often tied up together Mm -hmm. and it can be a little bit messy. You refer to John Stuart Mill and his um, writing about In On Liberty, which I found also really useful. But a lot of those thinkers were saying, you know, in order to get to truth, we need to have these discussions out in the open and then anyone watching will be able to see a fallacious argument and they'll yeah. see when something that's wrong yeah. and then we'll improve as a society because we'll have gotten further. And, and you highlight the fact that actually the media is driven by having not particularly nuanced debates yeah, and that they're driven by entertainment and you've mm-hmm. written about that in previous essays as well. And I was really interested... What <laughs> you do in your homework. I know. <laughs> I, I am the ultimate nerd as well. Um, but, yeah, to me, I was really interested because I've always been committed to that idea of having yeah. a public uh-huh. argument in the style of Christopher Hitchens' um, might and, you know, to thrash out those ideas because I myself, if someone gives me a good argument and it challenges my beliefs, I'm very open to changing. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered whether that's not really the norm because you're talking about in this book, well, Mm. there are a whole other range of factors like emotion Mm. and personhood and narrative that also influence the way people perceive arguments and words Mm. and that often someone making an argument will have their words kind of taken from them, like that they don't have control over how they're perceived and grasped and that that often means that women or people in minority groups don't have the same influence or control over their arguments like someone like Christopher Hitchens might have given his background, which was quite privileged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a really important thing for us to think about right now. I feel like so... Let me start with the hope and sort of the fantasy that I'm hoping the book explores a little bit more. The fantasy is is the one that you've just referenced, which is if we only clash ideas, then we'll be fine. You know, like if we enter into what I call 
this gladiatorial contest of ideas where it's meant to be combat. It's meant to be like, well, you you think that's true? Sure, I think this thing is true. Let's put our notions of truth up against each other and they'll fight and one of them will win. That idea is hundreds if not thousands of years old. It is in every major treatise about free speech, about freedom, about democracy, about about sort of man's progress towards truth because it was always man at the time. Um, this notion is such a good... It's almost like narcotic, you know. It's such a mm. good thing to think because if it was true, it would be fantastic. Like all we would need to make honest progress towards the truth would be to clash ideas with each other. That's a fantastic thing. Like if that's true, then getting truth is amazingly easy and we can sort of just rest easy. Like what a nice thing to be able to think. But, you know, as you allude to, there there are reasons why I think that is in part a fantasy. I don't think it's always a fantasy. I think that I'm still really committed to the idea that if we clash ideas, some of us will get to the truth some of the time. And I certainly don't think that there is no place in public for that kind of rigorous argumentation. I think it's really important. I just also think that some of the hope that we pinned on that idea might have been misplaced. So, you know, there's this there's this phenomenon of who we believe rather than what we believe. And there is an undeniable fact that the credibility that you give someone plays into whether you believe what they're saying. It's not just the quality of their arguments. It's the person who is doing the talking. And that can go both ways. That can mean that, you know, there's a really rich and quite beautiful way that people can access the truth via the people that they trust and that they love. You know, there's a way that our relationships can play an important role in bringing us to the truth. But then there's also a, a darker side, which is that, you know, like like all economies, it can go wrong for some people. And that economy of credibility can disadvantage people who are disadvantaged all the time, people who are, you know, not from around here or people whose skin is darker than mine or people who are a gender that I think is not particularly credible or insightful or likely to be intelligent. And all those things add up to mean that some speakers can arrive in this arc, this clash of ideas and they can do their job perfectly fine. Like they can make the right argument, they can give you the right premises and the net effect is not that their opponent or anyone watching the the clash thinks, oh, that's a good point. The net effect is that for reasons completely beyond their control, their very good argument just disappears from the scoreboard. And that's something that... Um, you know, that's not original to me. That's that's feminist philosophers have been saying that for years. You'd be amazed to hear they're not listened to. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's people like Miranda Fricker and Ray Langton have been talking about and like Jose Medina have been talking about that for a really long time. And I think it really puts the lie to a lot of our hope that debate alone will bring us closer to the truth. Yeah. And using women as an example, certainly once you get to your mid-twenties, you are quite aware that you're received in a different way than what you might have hoped, which is just, in my personal experience, I wrote about Australian politics and I did so under a pseudonym and I was received one way when I was writing. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I didn't say what gender I was. I yeah. just wrote and wanted my ideas to stand alone because yeah. of that very reason about all the kind of perceptions and lens and biases that get thrown onto your words and arguments. Mm -hmm. And then when I finally was a 
published writer under my own name, I had a totally other other experience and people would treat mm. me as if I was arguing from a place of emotion. And, and they sent you a lot of emails with unsolicited feedback? Yes. And gendered feedback asking too. Asking you to dinner in the same email? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think your work is bad, but do you want to date me? Yeah. Well, and it was it's kind of off-putting. It's really off-putting. Really off-putting, yeah. yeah, because then you just think, well, what's the point? I, I yeah. feel like I should be taken seriously totally. for my own arguments and mind. Yeah. So, yeah, it is quite disheartening. I can see how that does affect things. But if you're from a position where, you know, you're in the majority or you're part of the system that is perpetuating it, yeah. then you're probably not as aware of the kind of dynamics or biases that are really happening when we have these public debates or discourses or totally and that's kind of that's exactly the sort of person that I'm hoping the book will talk to is the the person who is really committed to being reasonable in public and that debate and the clash of ideas and the removal and sanitization of the personal that that is the way that we get closer to the truth because I I think you know I used to be one of those people and I think those people are really useful like warriors for persuasion in a time where we need them a lot so I'm hoping that you know the book's the book's sort of main message of be reasonable and fight for truth by all means but let's be a little more open in our vision about what that actually entails I'm really hoping to speak to those people and to Mm. be saying like look you know you know that hope that you had that you knew already what it was to be reasonable like maybe let some more stuff in let's go to some of the illustrations there are a lot to pick from really out there (laughs) I think two that stood out to me the most was uh, the first one that you're talking about Dylan and Missy so that I found really interesting because of the fact that it wasn't about trying to change people's minds based on the arguments or their actual beliefs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if we're talking about religion, does God exist? Is the apocalypse really going to happen? Are all these things based in fact or evidence? Where's your proof? Yeah. It was actually, as you've said, who is delivering it? Who is actually saying it? And what the person thinks of their credibility and their rationality yeah. and their insight, their actual insight into these totally. topics. How, when it's not about the actual facts or the arguments themselves or the beliefs themselves, which often we think that is how you change someone's mind, mm. when it's about because that person said it, how do you challenge someone, particularly when it is something like politics and it's not like, oh, you don't believe in climate change, here's all the evidence. Yeah, It's not, well, these are the, the points or my beliefs based on the evidence. It's actually like, no, but these people said it and I believe them because it's... It's them. Yeah, it's them. Mm. Yeah, this is exactly the question that I think the story raised. So so Dylan was born into a cult when he was a really... When he was really young, because that's the age at which you tend to be born. Um, so he was born into a cult and he was raised in it for 25 years. He'd never spoken to anyone who was outside it, really, in any kind of serious way. He was in the cult sort of like really full-bloodedly like he was committed to it he believed the things that they told him to believe and those were things like you know as you say like the apocalypse is coming and like there's this whole weird host of things that like everyday objects instantiate satan and you have to be real careful about them uh and you can't have certain medical treatments it was really like a fringe Mm. um and he met missy when they were both working at a restaurant and 
sort of immediately fell in love. And as a reporter, one of the things that's difficult about interviewing them is that they just don't like talk in separate sentences. They're just like so fused and so in love still that they sort of only interview as a fused item. <laughs> um, and what happened was Missy committed to herself that she was going to change Dylan's mind about his beliefs about this cult and, he, and she was going to get him out of this cult. She married him, she had kids with him before he changed his mind, but she was still sort of chugging through life, committed to the idea that she was ultimately going to change his mind. And the way that she said about changing his mind was, I'm going to pretend that I believe what these people believe. I'm going to sort of infiltrate in like a black ops thing. I'm going to go in and pretend to be open to being baptized and I'm going to go along to like worship and I'll sing the songs and I'll read the texts and I'll do the scripture things and she had a five-year plan for changing his mind and it took seven years and there was a moment which I won't disclose in its entirety you can read in the book uh, there was a moment where you know Dylan had to choose between the cult and his wife and he realized that actually he believed his wife more than he believed the cult and that raises exactly the question that you've just asked, which is like, well, how do we leverage that in more political, less extreme ways? I think the insight from that was that both when Dylan believed the cult and when he believed his wife, precisely as you say, what he was doing was not believing what they said on the face of what they said. It was the fact that they were the people who'd said it. And I think it's important to recognize that there are times where that can be rational, right? There are times where believing what people tell you on the basis of the fact that it's them is a perfectly good probability judgment. Like, mm. that's a person who I trust. They're likely to be right. I believe it on the basis of what they've said. And you need to. Yeah. Because as you say in another one, if it was with your relationships, yeah. for example, you'd end up being this very paranoid yeah. person who could never have an, an open, exactly. trusting relationship. Exactly. Like, so much of our daily wonderful life depends on believing what we're told so that's not what's wrong with what dylan did there's a sort of different question about what's wrong with what you know the way that dylan was structuring his beliefs i think the answer about you know how we can use that in political cases and in cases where you're trying to get someone to see the evidence is i think you've got to get to know why like what is it about the people that they're believing that is important to them where does the trust in them come from because very often it's not just I think they're right about what they're talking about. Very often the trust that we place in people has a lot to do with, you know, how do they make me feel and what narratives do they let me think about myself? And if you want to displace the beliefs that arise from that trust, you have to displace the trust itself. And that can be complicated. But you're also, if I'm trying to argue you out of trusting someone, I'm allowed to use certain things that I'm not allowed to use if I'm arguing you out of a belief, right? Like if I'm trying to get you to believe that this person's not trustworthy, then I can say all sorts of things about them and it's relevant and it's rational because you shouldn't be trusting them and that's worth keeping in mind. I mm. think. It's such a challenge nowadays as well because of the polarisation of views yeah. politically. It's getting worse, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and we are having more of these debates out in the open yeah. in different platforms which have their positives and negatives. Like all things, yeah. Yeah, but one of the things you pick up on there is about narrative and about who a person is and mm. that often what they believe and what they think is rational is tied to their sense of self and maybe it's not often questioned because we're constantly building a narrative in our mind and you really I loved the part where you were talking about how it's quite self-reinforcing and cyclical and so 
if you have a narrative of yourself, you often then act out that narrative yeah, yeah. and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Totally. And how do you have a circuit breaker and what happens when you might actually break the circuit? And mm. the great example is Alex's story and I was just so... Yeah. Isn't it great? It really is awesome. It's <laughs> one of the best ones. And he's in Australia, it's which fun, is even yeah. funnier. It's one, of the, it's one of the only fun ones. Let's get yeah, a little <laughs> they are. Yeah, exactly. And so I was just wondering in terms of the other parts, what part does narrative mm. and personal narrative have to do with, yeah. you know, rationality and, and decision-making? And yeah. yeah, why is that important? So Alex is great. <laughs> um, Alex grew up as a very Oxbridge fancy, like toffee-nosed, elbow-patched, upper-class English gentleman and he liked rolling hills and candlelit dinners with his family on like an oak table. Um, and I say in the book, like he, his best friend is Roger and Roger is a horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, he just had this whole like life, like worked yeah. out for himself. And then this TV show called Faking It came into his life. And the premise of Faking It was we're going to take people with very archetypical identities and train them to do something that is the exact photo negative of that identity. So they took like a house painter and they made him a conceptual artist. They took someone who like, um, you know, served drinks on a ferry and turned her into like an actual like yacht sailor. Uh, really, really fascinating things. And in Alex's case, they came to him and they said, do you want to be part of a transformative experience? And they didn't tell him what it was. And he, at 19, sort of signed on the dotted line. And then he said to me, like, it was too late then, like I couldn't go back. And what they trained him in was they were going to make him be a bouncer in the east end of London, which is like rough at the best of times. But this was at the peak of the 2000 European football championships. So it was a whole lot of really drunk people. And they made him get a new accent, get a new haircut, get a new way of walking, have a completely different identity where he could pass as a bouncer from Tottenham. And, you know, I'll, I'll conceal whether he succeeded or not, but on the way back from that experience, on the train back to his own house, he sort of started thinking to himself, I don't know which of these identities I've been faking. And that's where the narrative comes in for me as a philosopher is – you know, he had had this story about who he was that he'd been acting out and it put him in a funny position where, in fact, it was responsible of him to believe that he was like that because all the evidence suggested that he was like that, you know? Like that was indeed how he acted and those were indeed the things that he did. So the inference that I'm this kind of person is a perfectly good inference. But the reason that evidence was there in the first place was that he was acting from the belief that he was this kind of person. So you think you're a certain sort of way, you act in that way, and then when you wonder what kind of person you are, you look around at your life and you see evidence that suggests that you are the kind of person you've always thought you are. And round and round we go. And what was so interesting about Alex's case was, you know, that's a moment where the narrative broke. That's a moment where he got a thing that very few of us ever will get, which is access to what we would be like were it not for who we already think we are. And I think it illuminated for me, you know, it was a funny kind of thing because there were sort of three tiers of narrative going on in this. I liked, I hope I did this in the chapter, but I liked that it was a story about someone who was dealing with their own story. And then I'm writing that story into a story in a book about stories. And in my own career, having very much focused on telling stories about other people, it was like, 
And then also in the background, he's on a reality TV show, so they've kind of made him into a story. It was just like stories on stories on stories. <laughs> and the story became about how treacherous stories can be and how when we act in certain ways on the basis of the narratives that we already believe, you know, that that can undo our rationality. It seems reasonable, but in fact puts us in a position where the the very self that we're thinking with is a is a weird self. And it really does bring up a lot of the current arguments and the current cultural things that are in the zeitgeist at the moment about being your true self, being authentic to yeah, who you yeah, are. Yeah. What happens when you're actually maybe, and as you say, Alex wasn't looking for a life change and he didn't think there was something off, like he wasn't going, oh, something's just not sitting right with my life. And then this happens. You would have assumed that someone who had that realisation would have already been on a bit of a a journey, so to speak, to have a a kind of inkling that something wasn't right in their life. And you say that if there is no standing real self waiting to be found, then it's very hard to understand how we could reason ourselves into seeing it. And I mean, that's a big mind explosion in a way. (laughs) It was perhaps reassuring that maybe there isn't some authentic real true self that you just need the special insight to find and then all the things in your life will click into focus yeah yeah. you you can't discover it yeah you can't like reason yourself into or rationalize yourself into what am i really yeah i i think that's right i mean obviously i think that's right (laughs) that thesis i landed on um i totally think that's right i think that it's very easy to think that the self, just like everything else in the world, has a standing truth that we can discover if we look hard enough. But, of course, the thing that's funny about that in the case of the self is that, you know, you make the thing that you're trying to get evidence about. And I think it's kind of liberating to think, well, if instead of discovering it, I'm making it, then I can stop looking so hard. It reminded me of existentialist philosophy because mm. it was really just like existence precedes essence, which is essentially like you're not born a coward. Yeah. You have cowardly actions or behaviors Mm -hmm. that can accumulate and you know you look like a coward but you can still change course (laughs) yeah yeah, totally I think that's one of the most liberating parts of philosophy for me yeah yeah Yeah. so we're gonna have to wrap it up obviously we've just scratched the surface which is great so people can then do more (laughs) research and thinking by reading this book which is called stop being reasonable but just to close out I guess now that you are you have been thinking deeply about rationality and Mm. evidence are there things that have changed for you in the way that you think about life and rational argument yeah yeah yeah, there have been I I think it was important for me to realize that you know I spent a lot of my life having arguments with people in personal settings where they would tell me that I was like debating too much and I remember always being like that's just because you like your argument isn't good if your argument was good you would be less afraid of arguing it but now I feel like, you know, they weren't saying, like, I'm scared because you're better at arguing than me. They were saying, like, stop treating this like it's just an argument, you know? Like, there are people involved here and you've got to attend to them as well as the arguments you're trying to make. And that was... I think I'm less of a bad person now that I've realised that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so true that there's all of these human elements that are hard to pin down. Yeah. Sometimes you can't even name them. Yeah. And they're not always consistent between people. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't have this formulaic approach to no. something which is not even close to totally. experience that way. Totally. And then, like, you fail to make them... Like, you fail in your argument. You fail to bring 
either of you closer together or closer to the truth and then you walk like it's so easy to just walk away and be like oh that's on them like they were so irrational that whole time and it's like no it's only you you know like it's like you failed to communicate you failed to persuade someone you failed to reach someone and it's not on them that's a failing of yours Mm. and what comes to mind is the federal election yeah yeah yeah, let's not (laughs) no Eleanor, it's been fantastic to speak with you and congratulations. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Eleanor Gordon-Smith, who is a writer and radio producer, and she's the author of a book, Stop Being Reasonable, which is out through New South Books. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio Dr Chiara de Lazari and she is a teaching associate in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne and she also teaches at Monash University and she's here with me in the studio to talk about the European parliamentary elections and that of course is for that big body that is the EU, the European Union and it's pretty important, Um, there's a lot of seats and of course we won't cover it all but we're going to look at some of the big picture trends and changes and what it means for uh, not just the EU and how it operates over the next four to five years, but also talking about um, the domestic situations of a few of these countries who are in flux and having some pretty dramatic things happening. Um, Of course, everyone would be aware of Brexit, but there's much more to Europe than just Brexit. So I welcome Chiara now. Hello. Hello, Hemi. Good morning, everyone. Yes, it's so wonderful to have you in here. And um, it's really, obviously, we'll get to Italy, given that you um, (laughs) hail from there and have a wonderful accent, of course. I'm attempting my best Italian um, pronunciation so that's very nice actually (laughs) I I try my best Um, so let's get into some of what's been happening this uh, European Union elections people are a little bit nervous I guess in the sense that this whole idea of a an EU, a transnational parliament where like multiple nations have come together to govern themselves as a collective. Um, I mean, it seems like a really big undertaking and idea and it's been happening for quite a number of decades now. Um, But obviously with the event of Brexit and also, you know, um, the Greek the Greeks considering leaving and then, of course, they didn't end up leaving, but there's still a lot of turmoil in terms of Greece and their relationship with Germany and their debt that they've certainly been um, really experiencing a great deal of uh, poverty and and many political issues there. So when you get to these European elections, all of these different issues come to the surface um, that are currently playing out in domestic um, politics. And, of course, there's a little bit of tension about what the role is for the EU and how vital it is. And given that we're constantly talking about Britain leaving um, and whether they're going to finally leave or not and how. So in terms of these EU elections that we're seeing now, what are some of the most prominent developments that have happened so far? I'm thinking let's start at the really high level in terms of the 
public engagement, like voter engagement with these elections, because historically there was a high engagement right at the beginning of this parliament and then it slowly declined. What have we seen with this election? So uh, the interesting aspect about this election is the fact that for the first time in 20 years we have a very high turnout. So 51, sorry, 50.5% of uh, EU citizens voted for the EU parliament, which is quite significant, uh, especially considering the time that we have seen over the past few years in which we saw very much member states struggling with the idea of being part of the European Union for different reasons. Uh, just on the top of my mind, definitely Brexit was a deep conversation of the past years of seeing one country for the first time leaving the European Union or wanted to leave. We, we don't know what's going to happen at this stage. But, uh, you know, we were already talking about 27 member states, but now we're back talking about 28 because despite the conversation, the UK voted for the European Parliament. So So they're still part of the parliament because the situation is very complex there. Um, and that's one of the aspects. The second challenge that we've been seeing over the past years is the um, immigration crisis. So the challenges that we've seen in the lack of management of refugees and asylum seekers that brought really like huge tensions between member states and creating different categories, if you will, uh, amongst the 28 member states. So those countries that are in the Mediterranean Sea struggling the most. The rest of the countries not really understanding the situation or postponing a conversation. This was the scenario that we had prior to the election. So when we saw the election coming up, there was this huge understanding of whether we could have a potentially high turnout, being people understanding what the European Union really means and uh, so the level of engagement having 50.5% of people voting it was very very important to reinforce the idea that people may understand the importance of the European Union after seeing potentially countries leaving or countries staying. Yeah, it has garnered a lot of attention and even protesting not just in um, Britain but elsewhere in terms of the the rallying point of the EU, which is kind of this idea of unity and um, coming back together after a period of really substantial conflict in the 20th century, um, this is really one of the ways that Europe put itself back together in some some way. And we've seen new um, states also join since that time. And um, I think I believe Turkey's tried to, to join the EU recently. But let's talk about some of um, the nations. Maybe we'll start with Britain because it's just the most obvious and then it feeds into the others. So you talked about Brexit. Um, Nigel Farage is obviously a very con controversial person uh, politician he he really led the leave campaign for brexit and there's a lot of questions over the way that the campaign was conducted he's a well-known friend of donald trump uh and he's pretty right-wing um and he has a lot of strong views on immigration and um and wants control over the uk's borders among many other things and we've seen a lot of uh tension around his new brexit party which has just come out of nowhere, I mean, I'm sure it's been in preparation for a while in case there were um, EU elections that Britain would take part 
in because, of course, Theresa May didn't want uh, Britain to be engaged in these elections. But what is the development in Britain in terms of the vote there and how that plays in with Brexit? Because Labor is really not doing very well. Uh, The Conservatives are doing even worse. And so there are these other parties like the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party that seem to have captured people's imaginations. Yes, absolutely. So the situation in Britain was quite interesting because until very last minute we did not know whether they were going to vote or not. So actually, it's interesting because from an institutional perspective, they, like some seats were already allocated to the rest of the, of the other member states. So for instance, countries were voting for 72 seats plus three. So they already distributed the remaining seats. So the idea was already there not to vote. So the fact that they had to vote was so interesting because if you put uh, voters in a weird situation, not understanding, not really having a campaign, not really preparing for a campaign, at the same time, I'm not delivering because Theresa May was not able to deliver considering all the internal political problems. So stage with the results, we see that apparently uh, people in the UK are very much on board with the idea of not being part of the European Union. And this is quite interesting because now it will set a specific type of narrative and discussion on what's going to happen in the next few months. It seems like that People are very much inclined of leaving the EU, considering the turnout and the results of the elections, putting Tory and Labour in a very, very, very difficult time because Farange is back mm-hmm. and we don't know what's going to happen, whether the two main party will, parties will remain as they are or whether we will see maybe, you know, these parties like uh, creating multiple party system, not really a traditional way that we know, the, like British Parliament being as it is. So definitely that's one of the aspects that we could see. So Farange was very strong. He got more than 30% of the support in this election, um, in the European election. And I think this is a statement of what really people want. And considering that there was also the idea of running a second referendum to see whether the UK wanted really to leave or not, I don't know at this stage what they're going to do. And uh, it's very, very unpredictable. On the other hand, while the UK wants to leave, we see still countries want to join If we look at the Balkans, for instance, they are very much inclined, Serbia, Kosovo, very much inclined to join the European Union. So it has been interesting to see how, yeah, there might be countries that want to leave. Yes, definitely Greece has been struggling um, financially, of course, but also there is still a huge interest in joining the European Union because there are still benefits to see. The question is whether we see uh, the European Union working different ways and that what the populists really want. Uh, That's something that we need to keep an eye on because despite uh, these elections, we see the populists really not having the majority that they wish they had. Uh, At the same time, however, we are going to see a specific type of debate whether we need to change some processes in order to make a more equally distribution of power within the European Union. Because, you know, we started with a very limited number of countries and then more and more countries decided to join, uh, understanding the aim of this major transnational, supranational project. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the UK. And uh, from an academic perspective, everyone has been struggling a lot to explain. And when asked question, no one knew what to say. So, yes, it's like it's a really open uh, for discussion. Yeah, it's really shocking. And apparently uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party has won basically almost a very, very similar number of seats to Angela Merkel's uh, Christian Conservative Party. Obviously Angela Merkel being the Chancellor of Germany and she 
is stepping down um, later, but she's still a really important figure in the EU, certainly a big power player in terms of how the EU is run. And we're seeing um, a bit of butting of heads between Emmanuel Macron, who's the French president, and Angela Merkel. And it's interesting that um, there has been this, I guess, jostling for influence and trying to build up their vote in order to have a greater say or influence over who um, replaces Juncker, who um, is president of the commission. commission. What, where are we at then in terms of you know, the French results and the German results and how that plays into things? Yes, so these two big countries that definitely have a huge role within the European Union. Uh, let's start with Germany. Germany, uh, as you said, Angela Merkel's party uh, was the party that obtained the highest uh, you know, uh, you know, support of the uh, voters. Uh, second, though, it was interesting to see the Greens. Uh, there was quite an interesting result because the Greens, uh, generally speaking, within the European Union, never really had this major support that we can see nowadays. And uh, we also need to, uh, as you noticed, uh, Angela Merkel. This is going to be her last term. Uh, she has been in office for 15 years, if I'm correct, if I remember wrongly. So it means that, like, she has been the face also of the European Union. And it's going to be interesting to see when she's going to finally step down what's going to happen in Germany, but also in the European Union and the relations mm-hmm. between and amongst the major countries, if let's put it this way, or uh, economically strong countries and the rest of the member states. Um, she uh, she was able, again, to get the majority as predicted. Uh, she's very much liked uh, by the German people, German people, for, of course. But when it comes to European Union, she has definitely been the face of these relations between uh, France and Germany, for sure. Uh, opposite result in France, where yeah. Macron was not able to get the majority. And Marie Le Pen, uh, who she's, uh, she's the, uh, you know, the leader of the populist far-right movement, uh, or party, actually, it's a party there. Yeah, the Front National. Mm. Front National. And yeah, Yes, absolutely. So she won the election, the European elections. And so now she's claiming that something needs to be done. And, you know, some in some countries, we're already talking about having, uh, you know, anticipating the elections that uh, they were not supposed to be until a couple of years. And this is quite the conversation that we see very often when we have European elections, because these elections are quite considered as a midterm elections, if you consider the American model, the US model, because they test the popularity of the leaders. They test the popularity of the government and they use, especially political parties who tend to win and then, of course, they're not in parliament or they're not governing the country, they tend to argue that these, they have enough support to challenge the existing government. And that's what Marie Le Pen is saying. So, And we'll see also in Italy, we're going to see huge changes there in the dynamics because the Populist Party, the Northern League, uh, won uh, with a 34%, which is a, a party that never, like in the 90s, was about 10, 12% of popularity. Now we see a 34% in popularity, which is huge. And this is one of the, this is the second biggest, uh, biggest sorry, uh, party. Uh, in, within the European Union so in terms of popularity, which is going to bring the conversation uh, very interesting to see whether the populists will get together and what they will want. In reality, we see that they're not 
as many in terms of seats within the European Parliament because the Conservative, the Liberal and the Socialists are still on a pretty wide majority that tend to create multi-party kind of governments together in order to push forward specific policy. But definitely Marie Le Pen and, and Matteo Salvini, who's the leader of Northern League in Italy, that's what they aimed for and that's what, how they're also going to influence the discussion within national borders. And what is the significance of Matteo Salvini in terms of Italian politics and his previous involvement? Yes, so he's currently in the government with the Five Star Movement. So they made a kind of like a pact, an alliance, even though they did not really share much of the program. But in order to reach a majority, none of the two parties, actually the Five Star Movement was the party who got the highest uh, support, 35% in the last elections, but did not have a full majority. So they had to make a, a coalition and order to run the country. Um, right now we see uh, complete the opposite results. So Matteo Salvini and the Northern League pretty much won uh, from the north until the center part of Italy. So he got, obtained an incredible huge support. And, and he is going to go back to work uh, probably next week and trying to first meeting with the rest of the cabinet we are going to see the uh, implications of these results for sure he has a specific idea of Europe he has a specific idea of European Union uh, he doesn't like the European Union as it is right now um, which is going to be very interesting to see whether he's going to really uh, do what he says uh, during political campaign or is going to step down it's very complex, it's easier to change policies within national borders Borders. It's not that easy to have an impact on institutional structure when it comes to the European Union, because it's not just about one country. There are 28 member states involved. So um, he is very vocal and very loud in the way that he presents himself. Um, it's going to be... I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. No one was predicting like for them to get... 34%, which yeah. is a lot. And was anyone predicting that Silvio Berlusconi would actually be back or and now in the European Parliament, having won himself a seat? Yes, absolutely. Look, uh, Berlusconi did not do much of a political campaign or like an electoral campaign. He actually was sick. He was in hospital a couple of days yeah. before the election. So, but, uh, he's you in know, his early 80s. So yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he's 83. Yeah. Um, but he was the first uh, runner, the first name in the list. So if they were able to pass the hurdle of 40, 40 sorry 4% of and that was that the hurdle to start having seats in parliament uh, definitely was the name to be so yes mm. I mean it's not a surprise I mean I think it's more it's a surprise from an international perspective because they feel like okay now it's time to step down but the yeah. man will not step down <laughs> and now that he has his back his rights to be elected yeah. after everything that happened from a legal perspective definitely he wanted to do that and despite not really having a campaign and not really having a strong party as he used to be he was he managed to get almost 10 percent of the votes i think 8.9 or 9 even percent just by doing nothing yeah it's amazing the um star power he has given that he was prime minister of italy uh for a while there and yeah obviously that name recognition must be a big factor. Um, there are quite a few high-profile people who were running in these elections. There's also some like unknown people or people who are quite uh, unlikely to have been elected on the face of things. Um, just 
overnight on Twitter there was discussions around uh, Brian Monteith who is a former Conservative member of the Scottish Parliament who currently actually lives in the south of France, was a Brexit Party candidate and has been elected to represent England, parts of England. I mean there's a lot of this really surprising not quite logical things happening like non-residents of Britain actually representing that country. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's again, it's kind of like it's interesting because I don't know if you like probably people are not familiar with that, but also each and every country has a different kind of rules in order to elect and who can participate in the election. So active and passive electoral rights. So yes, they have been trying to synchronize the elections and so on. But like when it comes to voting rights, it's very interesting how each and every country uh, allocates like seats or who can vote, who cannot vote. For instance, most of the countries allow citizens around the world to cast a vote no matter what. Italy and other few countries like Bulgaria and uh, um, Cyprus, I'm sure. Uh, For instance, uh, only citizens living within the European Union could vote, even though they were living abroad. So all the Italians living in Australia, including myself, we could not vote for the election. So it's been interesting to see how uh, different laws and different policies tend to also have an impact also in the type of candidates that you tend you include also in the list or not so mm. it's also that aspect of being uh, transnational from that perspective as well so you know it doesn't don't really necessarily have to live in the country you can live somewhere else but then you have a specific ideas that will allow you to take part of the elections within a specific group of people. So it's more transnational than it looks like, and Mm. there is a flexibility among states in deciding active and passive voting rights for the electorate, which leaves scenarios quite open from that perspective. Yeah, it's interesting that it doesn't have that consistency. It's, like, quite different. Um, Something that's happened just overnight was in Austria, um, the Chancellor, who is a Conservative, Sastian Kurz, um, has basically had a vote of no confidence in him and his government. And uh, his Vice-Chancellor um, of a far-right Freedom Party had to step down about a week ago because of some pretty serious allegations against him. It seems like there's a lot of kind of... Uh, drama and and change going on in different countries within the European Union. How do some of these domestic situations play into the European parliamentary elections? Does it affect the way voters vote? Like I know in Australia when we talk about federal and state elections, they're still kind of quite different and people will vote quite differently because they're bodies or governments focusing on some different things? Yeah, the European elections are considered second order elections from a technical perspective, just use it in political sciences, meaning that voters tend not to give the same importance as the um, elections that you vote for the government, for instance, whether it's federal or whether you're like, you're not living in a federal country. Um, and so this plays a role significantly when it comes to who engages, who's engaging with the vote. So there would, most of the countries actually, I would say most, most of the countries, yeah, they don't have compulsory voting, generally speaking, not even for the European Parliament. So we see some trends and we see who's engaging, who's not engaging. How So... Uh, participation is different and also depending on what's going on from a domestic perspective people feel like they need to have a saying because they want to go against the the current government for instance and so there are specific dynamics that definitely play a role when it comes to casting a vote 
to make a statement, whether it's continuing to support the government or challenging the current government. For instance, um, Tsipras, uh, yeah. the prime minister in, in Greece, now he lost the uh, European elections. So his party did not win, um, creating like this situation of uh, calling in for an earlier elections because he wants to test, wants to check whether it still have support of the people. So you get this kind of situation where people or politicians, most importantly, political parties, tend to use this data uh, and these percentages in terms of participation and turnouts and results uh, to play with uh, whether there's a need to run an early elections or not. Mm. Uh, but we need to be careful here because uh, participation is not the same. The level of engagement is not the same. People are still struggling to understand what the European Union is and what the European Union does. Um, so we see that um, it can be compared uh, and still, even though we see a higher participation, so meaning that people maybe are more engaging after all what happened in the past years, we also need to be careful when we see this kind of discussion because people think like, okay, now... Uh, we are going to have new elections just because of these results. But it's not necessarily the case because look at maybe only 40% voted in this European election. Maybe uh, in your, like in previous elections for the government, you know, for the, the parliament actually, you don't really have the same turn. No, you don't really have the same turn. No, you don't really have the same turnout. So mm. it's kind of like challenges because um, parties tend to use this data um, to play with their strengths rather than really understanding and analyzing analyzing what's going on and sometimes can go well sometimes that it doesn't really work out in the way that they plan so there are different challenges that we see mm. Mm. i'm speaking with dr chiara de lazari and she's based at melbourne university and also monash university and we're talking about the european parliamentary elections and you mentioned there alexis Tsipras, who is the greek prime minister and leader of the syriza left-wing party of course yanis varoufakis was the finance minister for greece and was part of the negotiations when it came to negotiating Greek debt, um, especially with Germany and Juncker. Uh, And certainly one thing that is really interesting to me, and I wonder whether it has come across your desk or radar, is um, this DiEM25, Democracy in Europe movement, which uh, Yanis Varoufakis is a co-founder of. He was running in these elections himself um, as part of that party or movement, and one of their candidates has been elected um, to represent Germany, I think it is. So, I mean, what what kind of role do people like that play who are trying to say we need to bring democracy back into the European Union and make sure it's working for everyone and that it's not overly bureaucratised and, um, I guess, subjugating some of the interests of nations like Greece, for example, which is what Yanis has been saying. Yeah, so he has been vocal over the years, and especially when he was a finance minister, um, about the situation of having two different kind of Europes, if you mean. Uh, the one that, like, and I'm referring back to the Mediterranean countries, that they have completely different, uh, you know, financial situations, but also economic type of development. You cannot compare the economy of Germany uh, with the economy of Greece. Different kind of sources. And so he was questioning whether 
we need to restructure the idea of what the European Union is and how it works because it cannot, the conversation should not be based on France and Germany talking to each other and running the show. So that was his intent. DM25 uh, was created and became popular in Germany, as you said, not really across the board, even though we mm. find that there are uh, people engaging with uh, this type of discussion and being interesting in his ideas and ideals also. Um, but we, for instance, in most of the countries, they could not really put together a party, even though there are groups that are talking and discussing. So we see that. Unfortunately, what has happened is like, he's not the only one saying that the European Union should work differently. There are also the populists that are saying that the European Union is working differently. And together with a different set of topics and a different narratives, populists have been able to grab the attention. And uh, the discussion is always the same. The European Union is not working, but, you know, the focus is very much different. I think Janusz Varoufakis is not really interested in destroying the European Union. He is more, very much interested in having a discussion of mm. how can we be more inclusive and including all the 20 Eight, we are still 28, all the 28 <laughs> member states rather than having the two major um, countries because they have been always the major countries for, from different perspectives, which is France and Germany talking and making decisions for everyone. The populists do have a completely different idea. They don't like the idea of having a supranational authority that's running the show. Mm. Um, you know, they are very much interested in getting back the traditional power of nation states, controlling the borders, uh, controlling policies. Uh, some policies, for instance, states cannot control anymore. Yes. Thinking about the environment, but also thinking about those who are in the Eurozone, they cannot print their money anymore. It's all synchronized amongst countries within the Eurozone. Mm. So there's this discussion there. And I think that was probably, and that's the challenge that we see. How can we make the discussion of a new European? Union model belonging not necessarily to the populist, but be belonging to also another group of people that do not necessarily want uh, the destroyed European Union, they want just a European Union who's different in the yeah. way that it works today. Yeah. Just finally, Chiara, before I let you go, um, in terms of the European Parliament, what do you think stands out in terms of some of its key achievements and where it's perhaps leading the world in terms of policy? Yes, absolutely. So the European Parliament, first of all, is the connection between institutions and the civil society. So that's the reason why the Parliament is there, because they wanted citizens to engage, not thinking that it's just a uh, bureaucracy or institutions that they're detached by, from the general population. Uh, we see that the European Union has been the leader, for instance, in environmental policies. Uh, and still after the Paris Agreement, the European Union is the body who's very much interested in pushing forward specific Kind of policies. We need to keep in mind that also we don't have borders anymore. So the free movement of goods, people, uh, trade and services, that's something that it's quite unique and makes the European Union a unique model that we see for sure. Uh, and being working together as a family, you know, in, within families we have member states that, in this case, member states, where they fight, but don't necessarily, <laughs> it's like a huge family that you can think of, maybe an Italian family. <laughs> they, can, they fight a lot, but eventually they're being able to work together and trying to develop a specific kind of model. Um, yeah, probably on the top of my mind, the environmental policy is definitely something that we can uh, remind ourselves that we have been very, very good in, in doing mm -hmm. uh, and definitely has been also um, interesting to see how the European Union has been discussing, for instance, free trade agreements around the world in order to make it possible
possible to exchange goods not only within the European member states but also you know as we know uh, the European Union is negotiating with Australia a free trade agreement uh, so it's very much um, you know all these member states all together they are trying to work out uh, a way to have an important role from an international perspective and it's not just one country there are 28 working together and I think um, it's going to be interesting to see how it's going to evolve and whether uh, you know they're really challenging the idea whether in 2025 the European Union will survive the run is a survey mm. a couple of weeks prior the election to see whether elect the voters were thinking whether the European Union was surviving or not will survive or not in the next 20 years and skepticism was very much there um, I think People don't really understand it, tend for, t- take it for granted what has been achieved over the years and why it's such a unique model that we need to also protect to some extent because there's nothing else out there. So we are learning as is it develops. So yeah. yeah, it is still kind of new, I guess, when you put it into the context of the whole history of the world. It's a absolutely a, an emerging, evolving thing. Absolutely, Kiara. It's been such a wonderful uh, chat. Really fascinating. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you coming in. I've been speaking with Dr. Chiara De Lazzari. She's a teaching associate in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and she also teaches at Monash University. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.